Now the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Thursday, September 28th, 2023. Seven minutes past the hour, I'm Eric White filling in for Tom Temin. Our producer is Peter Masurlian, our digital editors Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up this hour of the Federal Drive, details on how the census actually causes distribution of federal funds. Plus, a potential shutdown could not come at a worse time for Medicaid. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of the Federal Drive. But first, Congressman Jerry Connolly could not wait any longer for the Republican majority to jump on the Fatara bandwagon. The Virginia Democrat and ranking member of the House Oversight and Accountability Subcommittee on Cybersecurity, IT and Innovation handed out grades under the 16th iteration of the Federal IT Acquisition Reform Act or Fatara scorecard on Tuesday. Federal News Network's executive editor Jason Miller joins me to discuss why Connolly lost his patience and most importantly, how agencies fared. Jason, how are we doing today? All right, Eric. Fatara, it's my favorite time of the year. Absolutely. So why did Congressman Connolly issue the Fatara scorecard now? He did it without the chairwoman, Nancy Mace, the congresswoman from South Carolina, the, the chairwoman of the committee. He, he had asked her several times over the course of the last really nine months, hey, the thing that's most important to me is Fatara. I really want to continue the bipartisan effort to hold agencies accountable for meeting the, the 2014 law. He said, listen, Fatara has worked. I've worked with Daryl Issa, Congressman from California, Mark Meadows, Trey Gowdy, Jody Heiss, all Republican, either ranking members or chairman over the last you know, uh, 10 years or so. And he goes, I want this to continue. And in fact, during a, a hearing back in, in June uh, on the cutting edge technology that Mesa's committee held, he actually said to her, listen, you promised me we would do this. We haven't done it yet. When are we going to do it? And I think, you know, he saw the calendar move. It's September. And he said, I, I just can't wait any longer. It's been nine months since the last scorecard. We need to do this. So he released it on Tuesday. And uh, he actually held uh, also a, a roundtable discussion. Don't call it a hearing, Eric. It's a roundtable discussion about the latest scorecard. All right. So let's get down to brass tacks. How did agencies fare on said scorecard? Generally speaking, agencies did well. There were uh, 13 A's, 16 B's, and 5 C's. The three agencies that got uh, the the highest scores included the Labor Department with an A. The U.S. Agency for International Development also got an A. And the Department of Education, kudos to them for getting an A on the scorecard. As you can tell, everyone did quite well. Even the Defense Department, which you know, typically got lots of D's and F's, uh, continued to be at that pace of a C. So these are all important things. I think the other piece that, that we shouldn't lose sight on, Eric, when we look at the scorecard, is the biggest improvements that we saw was the transition to the EIS or Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions contract that the GSA runs. This is that big mega telecommunications contract. Agencies are well behind on. GSA is giving agencies a extension time and time again. But what we saw from the December 2022 scorecard to the September 2023 scorecard is the doubling of the agencies with passing grades, meaning they've uh, disconnected at least 95% of their circuits. So 10 agencies received passing grades, 14 received failing grades under the network's transition. All right. So at this not a hearing roundtable discussion that Congressman Connolly held on Tuesday, he was trying to discuss the scorecard. But what were some of the other main discussion points that came up up there? Interestingly enough, he probably had the better set of witnesses than he's had at any other Fatara hearing over the last uh, 10 years. He had uh, CIOs from the State Department. He had GSA, SSA, Social Security Administration, the deputy CIO from VA, the Commerce Department CIO, and of course, the Government Accountability Office all showed up just to have a discussion about the scorecard and where it can go, what, why it's helping or not helping. 
And generally speaking, I think the one thing, the one trend that I would point to is there's still a lot of discussion around the cybersecurity scores. Now, Jerry Connolly was not happy with the how the Office of Management and Budget from last scorecard against December 2022 changed some of the, the metrics that they use, the publicly available metrics. Uh, they gave good reason why they made the changes to those metrics, but he was not happy about it. And I think what we heard from those folks who, te- who, who no, can't say testify, Eric, who talked at the round table was there are too many cybersecurity metrics. Uh, there's the FISMA metrics. The, there's the metrics used by the IGs, which is very similar to the FISMA metrics. There's performance.gov metrics. There's uh, other presence management agenda metrics, and they seem to be pulled in different directions. And, you know, for instance, Kelly Fletcher from the State Department said, hey, I got a B on the performance.gov, but I got a D on the scorecard. And she said, that's very frustrating to us because how do we explain that, not just to our boss, but does it really show how we're doing with cybersecurity. And, and, you know, Kelly Fletcher from the State Department said, we're better than a D, I know that. And I think if you ask any agency, they would tell you we're not a D or a C. I think they wouldn't say they're perfect, but they're definitely better. And I think one of the things that they all talked about was we we want to have more consistency, more standardization. So we're all getting measured the same way. So when I talk to my deputy secretary, when I talk to GAO, when I talk to the IG or Congressman Connolly, we're all talking about the same sets of metrics instead of all these different ones. The other thing I think that came out that was really interesting during the roundtable discussion was focused on the new scoring areas, whether it's you know CIO reporting or cloud. And I think those are really important too about how to continue to evolve them. I think everyone agreed at the roundtable that the metrics need to continue to evolve. And I think that's one area where I think there was, has been a lot of talk over the last few years, but I think there's still some ongoing discussions between GAO, between Congressman Connolly and, and, and the committee, as well as the OMB and the CIO Council. Interesting. So will there be any changes in December or whenever the next scorecard comes out? Right. I think Congressman Conley would love to see that December scorecard and a hearing and Congresswoman Nancy Mace, the chairwoman of, of the subcommittee, all take part in this. I think, you know, he, he really would like to see this be back to a regular hearing instead of a roundtable discussion. I think the two areas that they are definitely looking at and agencies got preliminary sc- scores under was this idea of CIO reporting, really looking at structure of the budget and the acquisitions. Do you or don't you have authority over a procurement? Do you understand IT spending? And then the other piece was the cloud. How are you moving to the cloud? How are you rationalizing your applications? In fact, Eric, I got a copy of the letter that Congressman Connolly sent to agencies back in August asking about for this data. And if you look at what they focused on in the letter, and this was about 30 questions, you know, about seven or eight big questions and then some sub questions underneath it. And a lot of it was looking at, okay, how are you dealing with application rationalization? Are you following the playbook that that OMB and the CIO Council put out? Uh, if so, what have you done? When are you going to complete the migration? So there's a lot of questions in there about these activities. And I think that's how the Congressman Connolly and his staff scored agencies' progress with these initial kind of pilot grades. The one thing I'll just offer is that there was a lot of frustration, I think, among CIOs, maybe didn't come out the hearing, but what I'm hearing from sources about that scoring approach, a little bit of, well, did you satisfy the staff enough to get a better grade or not versus based on metrics and publicly available data. I think, you know, you and I can disagree over the data, whether it's good data or bad data or it's right or wrong. But if it's all more subjective, well, you know, did I meet Eric's goals? <laughs> then that maybe is not as a, a, a strong as a way to do a scorecard. And I think that's a concern that I've heard from folks in the uh, federal community. More to come for sure. Federal News Network's executive editor, Jason Miller. Thank you as always. 
Always a pleasure. And you can find more of Jason's reporting at federalnewsnetwork.com. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come on Federal News Network, a potential shutdown couldn't come at a worse time for Medicaid. It's The Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. With a potential shutdown on the horizon, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services already has its hands full trying to decipher who no longer qualifies for Medicaid coverage now that we're on the other side of the COVID-19 pandemic. The process has already been hampered with a few issues, and a shutdown could make them worse. To find out how, I spoke with Kelly Whitener, who is an associate professor of the practice at the Georgetown University McCourt School of Public Policy Center for Children and Families. From the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic and during the three years or so following the onset, Medicaid renewals were on pause. So everyone, and this was under the direction of Congress, Families First Responsibility Act. So during those three year, that three-year period, states were required to keep everybody who enrolled in Medicaid enrolled, and they got extra federal funding in exchange for that. Starting March 31st of this year, that continuous coverage requirement ended, and states started this process that we call the Medicaid unwinding of renewing everyone enrolled. So their states are currently processing renewals for over 90 million people. And this is a huge administrative task. Uh, The only thing we've seen in recent history that's even at all comparable was in 2014 when states switched their Medicaid eligibility income counting rules to modified adjusted gross income. That was also a major undertaking, but I think this is actually even bigger. So in these reviews, are they making judgment calls on, you know, who qualifies and whatnot? And the qualifications have obviously changed since the pandemic and you know people are back to well, things are back to somewhat normal. Exactly. So Medicaid eligibility is determined based on a couple of different factors, but income is a big one. State residency, age disability status. There's also lots of other pieces, but income is a big one. And now states are tasked with determining, are the people currently enrolled still eligible? Do they still meet those income standards? Do they still meet the other standards? And there's a certain amount of that process that can be done in an automated way because we have, you know, data systems that can check and see, you know, how have wages changed or how has your family income changed, but that doesn't work out for everybody. You know, it can also, changes could be brought about by your household size changing, right? You maybe you have a baby, now you have a bigger household, you know, so it changes how the income counting rules work. So it's really a tremendous undertaking that has to be done on an individual basis going through and identifying whether the people currently enrolled are still eligible. And there's a big part of that that has to rely on systems, but there's also a part of that that has to rely on checking in with the person. And of course, we know that people moved a lot during the pandemic. So addresses may be out of date. We've also seen you know big delays in mail. 
So you might get information from the Medicaid agency asking you, you know, to confirm various data points. But by the time you receive that packet, you've already missed the deadline. So it can be really a tough process. And this started March of earlier this year, 2023, before all the shutdown talk started. How was the agency going? Did they have goals that they set of how many they wanted to be through by the end of the year? And if so, were they you know, on their way towards achieving that? So it really is a state-driven process. The agency set out the rules and allowed states to choose when to start their process and within some parameters, how quickly to move. Most states started April-ish and are planning to process all of their renewals over a 12-month period. But as far as how it's been going, I would say not well. There have been millions of people that have been disenrolled And a majority of those disenrollments have been for procedural reasons. And what I mean by that is that the state agency wasn't able to determine whether the person was eligible or ineligible based on those data sources and systems checks and didn't get information back in a timely way. So they disenrolled the person without knowing if they're actually eligible. And we know from previous experience with Medicaid enrollments and estimates from people like ASPE at HHS, that a large share of people that are procedurally disenrolled are actually still eligible, but just for some reason, you know, didn't get through those paperwork hurdles on time. So millions of people have been disenrolled. We believe that a large share of them are actually still eligible, but now they've just lost their health coverage. When that happens, who is that on and I know that there are probably you know different cases and a lot of variables, but is it because of a lack of communication between the state and uh, CMS, or is it you know some of the onus also on the applicant just not getting that paperwork in in time? It's a little bit of everything, right? I think what I try to think about is you know what would it be like for me, and I know that you know life is hectic and things come in the mail that sometimes take me a little while to open. Um, And then if it's a complicated, you know, packet of questions, that's going to take me a little while to fill it out and get it back. And I moved during the pandemic. So I know that I'm still getting mail forwarded from another address and that, you know, takes a while. So I think there is a certain amount of everybody trying their best to make the system work and it doesn't always work, you know, so it could be that the state agency is doing their best the families are doing their best, but it still just isn't coming together in a timely way to keep that coverage. And then I think there are also, you know, other problems happening. CMS discovered um, over the summer that some of the automated processes that we call ex parte weren't happening correctly at the state level. And so they sent out a letter to all states asking them to check their systems and make sure the system was running the eligibility on an individual basis. And they just announced the summary findings from that assessment last week. And about half of states, the system is not doing it correctly. So we know that people have been losing coverage inappropriately 
And now those states are going to have to pause those procedural disenrollments and reinstate the people impacted. And the estimates are that it's about 500,000 kids and families that have been incorrectly terminated. And that's happening right now. We're in the middle of it. So when you think about what that means in connection with a government shutdown, you really could see kind of a perfect storm, that there's a lot of technical assistance right now back and forth between CMS and the state Medicaid agencies. There's a lot of work going into mitigation strategies to try to fix these systems issues. And all of that will have to pause for the duration of a shutdown. The longer the shutdown lasts, the harder it is to catch up, the more problems that pile on. So you could see that this problem of already over 500,000 people that lost coverage inappropriately could get bigger and bigger and bigger. And politically speaking, much like troops pay, it's used as a way to try and guilt one side or the other to try and move them along saying, you know, you've got kids out there that are not getting their health coverage. Is that actually the case? Will there be some uninsured children because of a shutdown, you know, no matter who's to blame? Yes especially because of this unwinding process that's happening right now. We know there are children that have lost their coverage inappropriately, and CMS and states are in the process of trying to fix that. (laughs) And the state work will go on despite a shutdown, but they won't have their federal partner there to help them sort through, you know, how best to, to reinstate that coverage. This is only one example of all of the different ways the government shutdown has a harmful impact on the lives of people and on our government functioning. I know your listeners know that from all of the reporting you've done on it, but you know, it just really, it's upsetting that this is what it's come to again. Kelly Whitener is an associate professor of the practice at the Georgetown University McCourt School of Public Policy Center for Children and Families. You can find this interview along with a link to her column at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. You can also find it wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come on Federal News Network, meet the team leaders behind last year's successful fusion experiment. But first, details on how the census actually causes distribution of federal funds. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. How often have you heard it said the census count determines how much federal money a state, county or city will get? Data analysis by the project on government oversight shows that supposition is not quite as simple as it sounds. Federal Drive host Tom Temin got more from Pogo senior policy analyst Sean Moulton. So what were you looking at here? You went back and kind of countered the methodology that the census uses in its statements about how the money gets distributed based on the decennial count. What were you looking at here? Well, what we wanted to look at was a slightly narrower definition. The the Census Bureau did put out some updated data just earlier this year talking about the use of census data, which was very helpful. But they took a very broad look, which is fair. (laughs) It's their agency and they get to take credit for any time someone uses their data. I, I won't begrudge them that. But what we were really concerned about was when local census numbers, state, city, county numbers, when they are what get depended upon for money that then reaches that state, county, city. And so that geographic allocation, the Census Bureau included programs in there like Pell Grants, uh, educational Pell Grants, where 
census data is used to set sort of a national eligibility, a household income eligibility. But if you get your numbers wrong in Maryland, it's not going to affect Maryland students' applications to Pell Grants. And so everyone's going to be kind of affected the same. So it doesn't geographically change the distribution of money in Pell Grants. What we looked at were programs where if you got an undercount or even an overcount, it might affect how much money your region got. So again, we, we looked at a slightly narrower definition. And what are some of those programs that do vary by the actual number of noses they managed to come up with? It's a lot of programs that people have probably heard of, not that people have heard of all the federal programs out there. You have to be pretty wonky like me to know those names. But I mean, Medicare, Medicaid, those are some of the big drivers of these numbers. SNAP, which used to be called food stamps for people who remember them that way, but the Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Program, Head Start, School Lunch, School Breakfast, Highway Construction. It makes sense even when you hear that, that they're being driven by the population they're trying to serve. It really was. I think it was 338 programs, federal programs that we identified. Wow. Which, uh, yeah, I mean, it accounted for $2.1 trillion in a single year of spending. We looked at fiscal year 2020 because we wanted to make sure all the money had been fully spent. And $2.1 trillion, more than that, in one year. Well, did you find any anomalies? That is to say, no one knows really whether the count was right or not. The count gets certified, and that's the count. And there's no real other source of information other than conjecture to say, well, no, our county has 50,000 more people you missed. Yes, you're right. The decennial census that happens uh, every 10 years, that is definitive. We really don't change that. But what the Census Bureau does is after each decennial census, they do a post-count survey. And when they did that, they, they basically take a statistical sample in every state. Uh, and they send out a follow-up survey, and they see if there are differences, immediate differences, people they missed at households or, or people that got overcounted. And their survey this year revealed statistically inaccurate counts in a number of states. We had undercounts in, I think, five states and overcounts in seven states. And that was statewide. What they didn't get into was undercounts and overcounts, messed up counts, in local areas, in your city, in your county. So we could have even more, you know, in, in Detroit or in Atlanta, we might have undercounts that aren't big enough to skew the whole state, but they're big enough to skew how much money is going to that particular city. We're speaking with Sean Moulton. He's senior policy analyst at the Project on Government Oversight. And I guess there's another question that maybe wasn't part of your study, but I'm looking at just one of the 34 pages of those 300 and some programs that you list. And let's say, you know, National School Lunch Program, that's been around forever, $24 billion program. It's a lot of lunches, a lot of macaroni. But is there a correlation simply by the head count or is it the student count? Because you could get the same amount of money one county to the next, but the other one has 50% more school-aged children locally. How fine-grained does it get? It gets very fine-grained. Each one of these programs, people often try and simplify it and say, well, my state got X amount of money and there's this many people in my state. So so per person, we got, say, you know, $10,000. So every person we missed, we lose $10,000. It is not that simple. It is far from that simple. As you're saying, there's there's a good number of these uh, educational programs, school lunch, school breakfast, Title I. What they really care about is school children. So if you miss an adult or an elderly person, 
it doesn't matter at all. It's not going to affect those programs. And Title I grants to schools, those are even more specific. It's not just school children, but it's, it's school children from households below the poverty level. You're talking about within school children age, uh, you know, what about the, the kids from the poor areas or poor neighborhoods? Are you missing those? And again, every, every program is a little different. And so it gets to be not just how many people did you undercount, but exactly who did you miss or overcount, I should say. Sometimes overcounts can cost you money as well. Now, how does that work in something like highway planning and construction from the Transportation Department, Forty, almost a $46 billion program? Does it go by how many miles of roads you have in your area? Because that's not something the census counts. Or how many bridges and this kind of thing? No, no. The highway program is more about the number of people that a state has. That money goes to states, to a state agency. And so it comes down to how then the state agency distributes it within their area and whether or not they use census. This is the federal distribution. And sometimes that federal distribution comes directly to your city. Uh, Community development block grants go straight to counties and cities and bypass state agencies entirely. But something like the highway, they use census data, I should say, to, to allocate the money. But then it goes to a state agency who has a lot of control over then where that money gets spent that year. Sure. But just to look at it from another angle, take a little tiny state like Rhode Island geographically, but Mm -hmm. it's got many more people than a gigantic geographic state like Wyoming. Wyoming might have more miles of roads than Rhode Island. I don't know that be a fact because there's more density in cities and so forth around, you know, Pawtucket and there's cities that have lots of streets density, not so much in Wyoming for the most part, but it's nevertheless a calculus based on population. Well, it's a calculus based on in part on population. The census part is the population, but they do take into account that program, other factors such as you're saying miles of road, but that you're right, that doesn't come from census. So the the census part is going to be a straight population number. Got it. So when Congress then or when the Transportation Department decides where their $46 billion in roads go, they don't rely only on the census data, in other words. Correct. Some of these are complete formulas with lots of other factors being brought in, census being one of them. Others are thresholds, money going to rural areas. Whenever you see something about like rural electrification, how we distinguish if an area is rural or urban, that's entirely based on population density. And so that's a good example of where an overcount could wind up missing out an area on money. Because if you're getting a high enough population that you're close to that threshold between counting as rural or counting as urban, if you overcount your population a bit, you might cross that threshold and no longer qualify for any of the the rural money that's out there. Got it. Well, then, based on all of this analysis, what's your sense that census should do anything different? Are they doing everything pretty much the way they should, constitutionally, and according to you know what seems fair for distribution of federal funds? I think census is doing a lot right. There's big changes afoot. Last decennial census, the first time we used administrative records, really, to fill in some of this stuff, which, which makes sense. There's a lot more data available in, in sort of government records already. What I think we need to do is we need to properly resource and support these efforts. We need Congress to to be properly funding the census. They begrudge the census. It's an expensive operation to count so many people. But the reality is a lot of money depends on it. This is pennies on the dollar. I mean, we depend on these decennial numbers for 10 years 
trillions of dollars every year that we're spending. And if we get them wrong, we're sending the money to the wrong places. The other big thing I think that I take away from this is that states need to get more involved. As I said, we had a number of states with undercounts, overcounts, and those states need to play a bigger role in encouraging their citizens to participate, making sure they understand how to fill out the census, not to fill it out if they're moving at a particular date or if they have more than one residence, fill it out once and to fill it out accurately. Sean Moulton is Senior Policy Analyst at the Project on Government Oversight. We'll post this interview along with a link to his study at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Count on the Federal Drive. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come on Federal News Network, meet the team leaders behind last year's successful fusion experiment. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. It didn't last very long, but scientists at the National Nuclear Security Administration did run a test that resulted in nuclear fusion late last year. Fusion means the reaction put out more energy than the input to produce it. The proof of concept got lots of acclaim, and it produced finalists in the Service to America Medals program. Joining Federal News Network's Tom Temin earlier, Sarah Nelson, director of the NNSA's Defense Programs Office, and Samantha Calkins, program manager for high density and ignition science. Let's begin with what actually happened. I mean, this was not something that was large scale that you could observe with the human eye like, you know, Los Alamos big boy test. What really happened? Tell us the layout physically and what you actually did. I can take that one, Tom, Samantha. So really, you got to think about how NIF works. And basically, it starts with just a, a weak little initial laser pulse that's split and amplified multiple times until there's exactly 192 main laser amplifier beams. And those are guided by mirrors into amplifiers, filters, to ensure that its beam is uniform, smooth, just pristine quality beam. And that beam is processed into these quads. So that's like two by two arrays of beams. They're transported into a target chamber. And that target chamber is really where the experiment happens. The beams are focused into the end of a cylinder that's called a whole ROM. And that whole ROM holds a tiny little hydrogen fuel and just for some context, this whole ROM is, is about the size of the, the top of a pencil, the, that little eraser. There you go. Sarah's got a picture of it there. And so that laser energy that's focused inside, it's inside the surface of the whole ROM where it's focused that creates a bunch of x-rays, um, which blow off the capsule fuel wall, resulting in a rocket-like implosion. And that compresses the fuel to the core reaches about 100 times the density of lead. So that's really, really dense. This causes hydrogen atoms to fuse, creating helium nuclei, and that releases a whole bunch of energy, high-energy neutrons. And if this implosion is symmetrical and you've got just the perfect conditions for compression and temperature, that's really going to create what happened on December 5th where more energy was released than the energy that was put in. And besides that, it had to also overcome a bunch of cooling effects that, that create X-ray losses, electron conduction, implosion expansion, that really would kill any kind of ignition condition. It was an amazing feat 
that happened on December 5th. Yeah, I'm going to have you to our next outdoor cookout because that was a really (laughs) fascinating piece of uh, recitation, honestly. Well, a lot of the emphasis in the popular press was, you know, someday we'll have fusion energy and that's kind of a long shot at this point, and, but we know that there's a proof of concept. Also interesting and not as widely reported, though, was how this can help the NNSA's own mission of evaluating nuclear warheads and understanding the internals of what's going on with them in an age when we are proscribed by treaty from blowing them up to make sure they work. Dr. Nelson, maybe talk about that a little bit. Sure. Happy to, Tom. So that's absolutely right. There has been a lot of coverage in the press about the energy implications for the experiment at the National Ignition Facility out at the Lawrence Livermore National Lab last December. But NIF was actually built for stockpile stewardship purposes. And already the program and our research is benefiting from the ignition experiment in December and the repeat experiments that we've had subsequent to that for understanding nuclear weapons conditions. Because the conditions that uh, Samantha described just previously are those that occur in the sun and those that occur should a nuclear weapon detonate. And as you rightly mentioned, since 1992, we have not detonated a nuclear weapon test. And this is one of the many ways that science-based stockpile stewardship helps inform and ensure that we maintain a safe, secure, and reliable stockpile in the absence of that testing. So we're actually using these data already to help the stockpile. It sounds like it's something that is an almost an artificial intelligence or a data application, a way of I don't know. Are you able to measure what's going on inside a nuclear weapon? Is there any way of intuiting what's going on inside under the shield that's on top of it to know that, I mean, the ultimate goal, right, is to know that if it had to blow up, it would, correct? And that's the purpose of the program that Samantha and I are in. So I'm the acting director for the Office of Experimental Sciences within NNSA Defense Program. Samantha is one of our program managers for high energy density physics and uh, ignition science. And that's one of the many activities that we have going on in the experimental science office. We do this work in partnership with our colleagues in advanced simulation and computing and also the engineering and tech net offices to ensure that our stockpile has the best and brightest working on those problems so that we don't have to resume underground nuclear testing. So there's, there's a variety of ways that we can, can look at things without resorting to those kind of tests. We're speaking with Dr. Sarah Nelson. She's director of the Defense Programs Office of the Experimental Sciences at the National Nuclear Security Administration, and with Dr. Samantha Calkins, program manager of high-density energy and ignition science for stockpile applications. You know, those titles and the work and the apparatus that you command strikes me that a nation that would have nuclear weapons needs to have the infrastructure of brains and technology to operate it and maintain it responsibly. I'm getting that message pretty strongly from this interview and probably not the case of every nation that has or would have these. So I can't really comment on what other nations do or do not have, but I know that it is an absolute priority uh, for the NNSA and the uh, Department of Energy to maintain our skilled workforce, especially as we get farther and farther away from that, that cadre of people that have experienced underground nuclear tests. And especially since we're not doing them anymore. 
So having not only the great workforce, the skilled, experienced workforce that's learned from those people from that Cold War time to uh, the facilities that we use, such as the National Ignition Facility and our other laboratories at Los Alamos and Sandia and the Nevada National Security Sites and other partner universities. We work together to try to maintain the really unique infrastructure that we have to support these highly specialized experiments that we need to run to underpin the reliability of the stockpile. Sure. And since that experiment and since the receiving of finalist categories in the the Service to America Medals program, what has your life been like? Because you are two very prominent women in STEM, and women in STEM is one of the national talked about priorities, but you're living it day by day in a very high level. I'll go first and then I'll turn it over to Samantha for her perspective. So I get to do a lot of fun things like this. I I get to talk to people about the work that we've done, why it's important, what's driven us to pursue careers like this. All the way back to my undergraduate alma mater recently uh, did a little piece on me in the the college paper, which was pretty great. And it's nice to be an advocate and a, I won't call it an ambassador, but um, I guess I just did (laughs) for for women in STEM and, and women in defense as well. And Samantha? So you asked what has changed. (laughs) When I think about the science that we're doing uh, within defense programs, I think we have now an opportunity to to keep on going, to push the boundaries of what the National Ignition Facility and what the Inertial Confinement Fusion Program can do. And so right now we're working across the entire national program thinking about what is that future? What is the science plan we need to embark on in the next 10 years? And so it's really exciting being a scientist and being able to kind of look towards the future of what's possible. Sure. And just what are the prospects for fusion being a practical function? I kind of liken it to quantum computing. Yes, there are small-scale quantum computers, but you have to freeze something to almost absolute zero. And so the apparatus to do that makes a actual commercial-scale quantum computer nothing we're going to see. Some people say never. Some people say, well, maybe 10, maybe 50 years to get enough qubits to be able to do real computational science. What about fusion? That strikes me as kind of the same conundrum. Yes, we can show that it works, but to get it to where you can plug your toaster into it, could that happen in any reasonable time period? I'll leave the fusion energy side to Sarah. She can talk that in a moment. But for the actual stockpile stewardship program, we are using this platform now, as Sarah mentioned. We're not waiting years. We're using it now to inform information on materials, better understand and assess the performance of our aging stockpile, which is really important for us. And so we don't have to wait years. We can use this now. We can have these extreme conditions test what we can do. Dr. Sarah Nelson is director of the Defense Programs Office of Experimental Sciences at the National Nuclear Security Administration, and Dr. Samantha Calkins is program manager of High Energy Density and Ignition Science for Stockpile Applications. Both are finalists in this year's Service to America Medals program. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts.
But first, officials from all three military departments acknowledge their organizations have dropped the ball when it comes to providing decent housing for service members. That's after a scathing audit that found widespread health and safety risks in government-operated barracks. Defense officials say they're working to solve the problem, but after years of underinvestment, it'll take time to improve living conditions. Details from Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. In site visits to military barracks, the Government Accountability Office found problems like overflowing sewage, mold and mildew, broken locks and air conditioning systems, and numerous other ways unaccompanied housing falls short of DOD's own facility standards. And Elizabeth Field, GAO's Director for Defense Capabilities and Management, says the military services likely don't even know the full scope of the problem. Military barracks are used to house our most junior enlisted service members, many of them teenagers fresh out of high school. Unfortunately, because of this, we found that many, although not all, department officials have chosen not to obtain their input about the quality of their housing. According to these officials, this demographic group is so unreliable in terms of completing surveys or replying to email or telephone inquiries that it isn't worth trying to solicit their opinion. Other officials told us that the condition of barracks is not a key factor in military retention and therefore doesn't merit inclusion as a topic in already lengthy surveys. What we learned, however, is that these service members have a lot to say and are eager for someone to listen. In addition to the physical inspections, GAO held listening sessions at a dozen installations. At all 12, service members said they had concerns about health and safety bad enough to affect their mental health. Senior enlisted leaders at eight bases said the same thing. We heard from residents of barracks that uh, because they are so uncomfortable in their barracks rooms, they have a hard time sleeping, they're tired on the job, they don't feel like they can perform and, and focus on the work that they have to do. We also heard from first sergeants who are responsible for for training uh, these junior enlisted service members. And they say, uh, they, they told us uh, specifically that sometimes they, they take it easier on them in training. They will uh, cut back the length of runs or the specific drills they're going to put their service members through because they know they're going home to the barracks at night. So clear readiness implications there. Defense officials say GAO's findings didn't come as a surprise. Carla Colson is the Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Army for Installations, Housing, and Partnerships. I think it's through many years of, of not uh, looking closely at the deferred maintenance, at investments. And so now we are, in effect, playing catch-up. And this is not the report, frankly, was not news to the Army. We're well aware, and uh, our leadership, from our secretary, our chief of staff, on down, uh, are focusing uh, very clearly on quality of life, and barracks is a piece of that. The Army is by far the biggest operator of government-owned barracks. Out of 9,000 buildings across the military services, the Army owns 6,700 of them. Colson says 23% are in poor or failing condition, and the Army is now spending about $1.2 billion a year in restoration and modernization funds to improve their condition. According to GAO, though, across the military services, there is a deferred maintenance backlog of about $137 billion. And Field says that's likely an underestimate because DOD doesn't have reliable data on the true condition of its barracks, even though each one is inspected every five years. So, for example, we went to a facility in the D.C. area that had a score of 86 out of 100, which sounds pretty good. 
that facility had a quarter of its air conditioning broken. So a quarter of residents had no air conditioning, and yet it still had an 86. And this happened again and again where we would go to installations and the scores just did not make sense. We tried to figure out what's going on. Why is this a problem? And we identified a few issues. One, uh, they, the frequency of assessments was, was likely not enough. Uh, right now the DOD standard is every five years. Consistently, installation commanders told us five years is not frequent enough. Uh, and in some cases, they weren't even doing them that frequently. So that's a problem. Another one is the number of systems that they're assessing. There are th 13 building systems that they're supposed to be assessing. In some cases, they don't always do that. Another is the training of the uh, inspectors. They may not have training. There's no standard right now. Some services, like the Air Force, do have standard. They hire personnel with expertise to do the inspections. Uh, some uh, services do not. Uh, some take a centralized model where the same team will go out and inspect various barracks across the services. Others have a decentralized model. So we have a recommendation to DOD to reassess everything from requirements for frequency to, to standards to inspector training. Robert Thompson, the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Energy, Installations, and Environment, says in the wake of the GAO report, officials from the military services and the Office of the Secretary of Defense have started re-examining those standards and whether they're the right ones to use for living spaces. You know, there needs to be a standard for livability, right? There needs to be a, a, a plain-eyed, clear-eyed view of what the standard is for this place to be dignified, safe, and comfortable. So I do think we have a, taken our expertise in facilities, just moved it right on over into essentially barracks, mm -hmm. and then we expect that to, to serve us well there. And again, even if we trained everyone, even if we had consistency in application, I think we're still missing something there. In recent years, the military services have habitually underfunded maintenance for all of their facilities, spending only about 80% of what DOD's own models say is needed to keep buildings in good working order. But even within that larger underfunded pie, barracks have tended to get the short end of the stick. Field says the same is true for military construction funding. A lot of times, even though installations know they need funding for constructing new barracks, uh, they don't feel uh, comfortable requesting that funding because they know it won't compete well against other uh, requirements, and so they don't put those uh, requests forward. It really is a matter, though, of, of chronic underfunding at the DOD level, not on Congress's part. Eventually, if you don't fund sustainment enough, you're going to need to build an entirely new barracks, which means you need new MILCON, military construction funding. And eventually, if you don't do that, you're going to have to spend money on basic allowance for housing to get service members to live in the economy because you just can't find a place for them to live. So I think it's a combination of that chronic underfunding and neglect, but also that lack of accountability. I think there has been a cultural perspective within the department that part of being in the military is toughing it out. And, you know, this, this is just going to get them ready for the military. And unfortunately, I think that has... That has gotten us in part to where we are today. Robert Moriarty, the Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Installations, says his service recognizes the underfunding problem and has been making moves to give barracks their own dedicated funding source. I think the Air Force, we did lose the bubble. We used to have a dorm focus fund. We went away from that and when we centralized a lot of our installation management, when we put all the money together, we've gone back now back to the past, and we now have a focus fund, if you will, where we set aside the amount of funds we think we need to keep the dorms good and accelerate that. So they do compete within there from the top line, but then they compete amongst themselves so we can target our investments at, at our worst dorms first. In all, GAO made 31 recommendations in its latest report. DOD concurred with most of them. 
But Field says Congress may want to consider enacting those recommendations into law because it's not the first time DOD has agreed to implement fixes as the problem continues to worsen. She says GAO brought some of the same issues to the department's attention during audits 10 years ago and 20 years ago. If we don't see the department implement all 31 of our recommendations in a meaningful and timely manner, I would encourage you to consider putting those recommendations into legislation to make them statutorily required. That is something that has happened with uh, privatized family housing, uh, and I think that has been effective. I I will note that the department concurred with most of our recommendations, but in some cases there were partial concurrences and statements that they've already implemented the recommendations, and so they're good. Uh, they're not good. Jared Serbu, Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. And you can find more of Jared's reporting at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates on the government shutdown, you can go to federalnewsnetwork.com and search government shutdown for our shutdown resource page. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom Temin. <laughs> 